Hello, this is Eyes for Ears, our ophthalmology OCAPS and Board of View podcast. We're your hosts, Ben Young. And Andrew Powell. Please keep in mind that these podcasts are for medical education only, not to diagnose that thing on your eye. We're ophthalmology residents who figured reviewing for clinic, OCAPS, or boards is better when you don't have to do it alone. Each week, we'll review a high-yield topic and flesh out the why and the how. Today, we're reviewing the white dot syndromes and a little bit extra. What's a white dot syndrome, Andrew? I think it's a syndrome with white dots. Oh, okay. But we're going to cover white dot syndromes that don't have white dots. Well, shoot. But what we're going to cover is kind of generally the white dot syndromes as part of the greater non-infectious chorioretinopathies. And it turns out that it can be broken down to be made more reasonable to digest. If you go by the retina BCSE, there's actually really only five white dot syndromes. At the same time, go figure BCSE, if you look in your uveitis book, which for old timers like me in edition 2016 to 17 is on page 141. There's a real nice table that's a little more comprehensive than the Friedman's table. But we'll focus on the core five white dot syndromes. And they are, Jermal, please. Oh, me? Fully work. Where's the... Do you want me to... Fully... (laughs) Okay, okay. Oh my god. (laughs) Mudes... Acute posterior multifocal placoid pigment epitheliopathy. We're just going to call that one placoid. I always forget where the P's and the M's go. Yeah, it's the one with a lot of P's and E's. Then there's birdshot chorioretinopathy. Then, now here's the kicker. Multifocal choroiditis and punctate interchoroiditis are, according to the latest BCSEs, considered to be on a spectrum of one disorder. So we're going to consider multifocal choroiditis and punctate interchoroiditis as one thing. And then there's reprisionist. So maybe we should zoom out first. White dot syndromes are inflammatory retinopathies of unknown etiology that are supposed to have white dots at some point in the presentation, though they don't have to have it throughout the whole course. So as I said before, there's five. We're going to review them in order of best prognosis to worst prognosis though keep in mind that this is just an approximation and can't is not a strict lineage of good to bad in terms of white dot syndrome so what's the first thing on that list first thing on the list first thing in terms of the best the very nicest did not eat the best one to have unfortunately both you and i probably couldn't get the best one because mudes is just for ladies most of the time Except when it's not. Yeah, well. Mute stands for a multiple evanescent white dot syndrome. So it's easy to remember it's a white dot syndrome. As Andrew said, it affects women more than men. And it tends to affect young myopic women. It's usually on the one side too. And it presents with photopsias and decreased vision. They also potentially have an enlarged blind spot. Although that'd be difficult to pick up unless you're really diligent with your Amsler. Yeah, so you need to uh, do visual field testing to really pick that up in the clinic. Sometimes they have a viral prodrome as well, about half the time. And because it's, the as we'll cover later, the only of these core five white dot syndromes that's unilateral, it can't have an RAPD. Some findings that are unique to it on fluorescein angiography are a wreath-like hyperfluorescence with staining of the lesions that show up in white dot syndrome, i.e. the white dots have come up, and of the optic nerve. 
that uh, term wreath-like is a pretty common, what do you, how do you call it? Buzzword. Buzzword. It's also, thankfully, very self-limited. I've seen patients with this, and over the course of a few days, the white dust just gradually started going away, vision gets better on the affected eye. But what will persist on OCT are some changes, and they call it sort of abnormal reflectivity of a particular layer of the retina, as you might remember from our last podcast, that layer, either the inner segment, outer segment junction, or ellipsoid zone, that's where mutes leaves its permanent mark. And it's you can remember that it affects the photoreceptor layers because one of its chief symptoms is photopsias. So photopsias occur because those photoreceptors at least are inflamed. So you can think of the photopsias as the screams of the photoreceptors, and that's why they get those symptoms, and that's why they have that pathology in that layer. Okay, I think that's good for mutes for now. We can move on to the next one in terms of quote-unquote badness. And that's the one with all the P's and the E's. It's the, the placoid uh, one. Want to do a back and forth? Let's do acute. Posterior. Multifocal. Placoid. Pigment. Epitheliopathy. We didn't mess it up. Ampy. Yeah. So ampy is the placoid one. So relieve larger plaque-like lesions that are kind of creamier in appearance. About one to two disc areas in size often. And it's the only of the core five white dot syndromes that has significant uh, systemic uh, associations. And the the main one to know about is cerebral vasculitis, because obviously that can be very dangerous. It also apparently is associated with thyroiditis, erythema nodosum, and enteritis. On fluorescein angiography, it has early blocking and late window defects. So the lesions are blocking at first, and then eventually it causes enough atrophy of the RPE to cause window defects. Because again, all these things at some point probably affect the outer retina. And a lot of these whole white dot syndrome types things, they're mostly bilateral. Except mutes. They're all bilateral but mutes. Okay, that's ampy. That's not so bad, right? We've got two out of five down. The next one is birdshot. Can I talk about one thing real quick? You can talk about anything. So we're not talking about serpiginous just yet. According to Ben's spectrum of best prognosis to worst prognosis, serpiginous is the worst. But there is this continuum. There's a continuum of the exam findings from ampy to serpiginous such that, you know, you can imagine these one-to-do disc area lesions sometimes get big enough and confluent enough and really severe ampy that they can be easily confused for serpiginous. So there's this new term out there, which is ampiginous, sort of a in-between presentation of either ampy or serpiginous. So, so far we've talked about mutes of the best prognosis. So we talked about ampy with the second to best prognosis. What's next, Ben? Birdshot sort of has a third best prognosis. So that's what we're going to go next. Birdshot is interesting because it has a more specific demographic. It affects... Caucasians who are HLA A29 positive. In fact, the the people who have it are so commonly Caucasians with A29 that if someone appears to have birdshot and is not Caucasian and or does not have HLA A29, you have to be very suspicious that it is not truly birdshot. Also, generally, the white dot syndromes are sort of a young person's problem, except for birdshot, which you can get kind of generally in the 40s to 70s age range. One thing I like for birdshot, Caucasian old guys, think of Dick Cheney popping up from the underbrush 
about to shoot you in the face. Ta-da. And he may even have birdshot. We don't know. We don't have that kind of information. Well, he needs to get a heart first. So A thing to, rem- to, to make it easy to remember that uh, it's HLA-A29 associated, which is another common kind of buzzword, is that there's 29 pellets in a shell of birdshot. I thought you made that up just for the convenience of this. Dear listener, please don't look up this fact. It's easy to remember if you don't know the truth. <laughs> okay, there are 29 pellets in a shell of birdshot. Just believe me. So birdshot looks like what it sounds like, as do most of these, honestly. They're they're visually descriptive uh, if, if you look at them. But birdshot has many scattered cream-colored depigmented lesions on it. So it looks like someone took birdshot to a retina. Another thing that is kind of more peculiar about birdshot is they tend to have more parafovial leakage and cystoid macular edema. And the last thing we want to mention about birdshot retinochoridopathy is the fluorescent angiography findings. The specific buzzword to try to remember is quenching. That's where the dye appears to leave the retinal circulation quickly in a fluorescent angiography. Um, According to the primary literature, it appears that that happens because the blood vessels are slightly leaky and allow the small fluorescein molecules to leave. Um, That seems to be beyond the scope of the test, but if that explanation helps you remember why it happens, um, the most important thing to remember is that quenching means, in general, birdshot quarry retinopathy, or you should associate that in your memory. A couple other things to remember about birdshot quarry retinopathy with FAs is that the lesions, the birdshot little yellow creamy lesions, are hypofluorescent, especially early in an FA. And in the late stages of an FA, um, there is diffuse hyperfluorescence. So not necessarily hyperfluorescence of the lesions, but diffusely within an FA. And that probably has to do with the fluorescein molecules leaking quickly, giving that appearance of quenching um, within um, birdshot retinopathy. So... That's birdshot. Andrew, what do you think is the next worst one to have if you didn't want to have these? Fourth on the list, less bad than the last one, Serpiginous, are this spectrum of things ranging from punctate intercoidopathy to multifocal choroiditis that can have associated panuveitis. It's a spectrum of punctate from punctate intercoridopathy, where you just have the white dots that eventually scar out as just these well-defined, punched-out atrophic lesions. That's why it's called punctate. All the way to multifocal choroiditis with panuveitis. So just punctate intercoridopathy should not have any vitritis, shouldn't have any vascular inflammation. And then as you get more vitritis or more vascular inflammation or more scars or lesions, then it gets more along that way on that spectrum. And on the fluorescein angio, these lesions in PIC or MFC, these lesions will initially stain, but eventually they'll become window defects as it proceeds too. There's a high, relatively high rate of CNV formation as well with this uh, spectrum, PIC, MFC. About 30 to 40% can get CNV. So to summarize the PIC, MFC spectrum, it's a set of diseases that have well-defined, punched-out retinal lesions that can have a spectrum of inflammation from um, PIC, which was initially defined as having absolutely no inflammation, and that may still show up in practice tests, for example, 
Um, if it's a white dot syndrome with absolutely no inflammation, it was PIC to MFC with panuveitis, which as the name says, can have panuveitis. And this whole spectrum of diseases has the highest rates of choroidal neovascularization, CNV, of the white dot syndromes. So that's PIC to MFC in a nutshell. So what's the very last bugaboo then? Okay. We're calling this the worst of the, of the white dot syndromes. Yeah. The worst well, of the real white dots. In terms of prognosis, it's probably the worst. They call it serpiginous. We mentioned it before, alluded to it when we were discussing ampi. Serpiginous makes these snake-like lesions that start from the optic nerve. And it eventually leaves geographic scars that have active edges that stain and move in that snake-like pattern away from the disc. It can have an associated vasculitis along with it, which is probably part of why it has such a poor prognosis. And it's a disease that commonly recurs. Unlike AMPI, which we said is somewhere on the spectrum with serpiginous, that typically doesn't recur. Serpiginous has a worse prognosis, causes the same scarring, and does recur. <laughs> okay, so that was that was a lot. We talked about a lot of stuff. Maybe it's helpful if we talk about some of the common features between all of these diseases, and then we can specify where certain diseases are more unique. For example, they're all bilateral. Except mutes. Except mutes. Okay, so that helps if you're, you know, looking at a question or thinking about a patient who has what looks like a white dot syndrome. They have, you know, usually don't really have many systemic associations. Except for ampi with the cerebral vasculitis and a couple other things. Yeah, thyroiditis, enteritis, erythema nodosa. Then do you have a fun mnemonic for that like you usually do? No. Then they usually don't have CME. Birdshot can. I mean, other ones can too cause um, CME. But birdshot seems to have, to more commonly have CME than the others. They rarely have CNV, though MCP and PIC. To remind you, punctate intercoridopathy and the multifocal choroiditis are more likely to have CNV. It's like 30 or 40%. And, you know, you can think of it as making these nice punched out scars that would may, may allow for a break in Brooks to allow CNV to penetrate through. They're all young-ish people, except for birdshot again. Although serpiginous is second oldest too. Yeah, with... usually it's young people, like 20s to 40s, but serpiginous and birdshot are a little bit older if that like comes up and helps you differentiate between patients. So there is definitely overlap between them all. They all can have vitritis, so they don't have to, but they all can have vitritis. Except punctate intercoridopathy. Right, which is on the spectrum, so it's like, that won't, but that's on the spectrum with MCPs. There's a female predominance in all of these five, except for ampi and serpiginous, where that's um, man-woman equality. So, okay, those are the white dot syndromes. But there's three more syndromes that are, don't have white dots, but are similar in a lot of ways to white dot syndrome. So we'll cover them now. So just a broad overview of the three that he's talking about. Those are Azur, AMN, and acute idiopathic maculopathy. So there's a lot of similarities to MUDES with Azur, which is acute zonal occult outer retinopathy. It happens in young myopic women. They have hypopsias, they can have an enlarged blind spot. They tend to have more nasal field loss, and it's 
typically more bilateral than mutes. That's one difference for mutes. And they typically have larger visual field defects overlying the areas where there are RPE atrophies or depigments. What's the defining symptom of Azor? Photopsias. Cool. Okay. That's it. So for the other one, there's acute macular neuroretinopathy, AMN. Also affects women a little bit more. This one is unique in that the patient will be able to tell you, I see this little, well, they're going to describe a scotoma, but unusually they'll describe it as like a wedge or even a teardrop-shaped scotoma. They may not actually say that, but if you get them to draw it out on like a, you know, Amsler, if you get them to draw it out on an Amsler, that's what it'll look like. More unique than even that is when you look at their macula, you may actually even see a lesion in the macula that corresponds to that exact shape they drew. It can take a couple weeks for that lesion to appear, but as Andrew said, it typically does appear. And you might not see it unless you just take a stray glance at the on-foss image of your OCT macula. Um, We were just talking about this. Don't really know why people kind of gloss over the fact that that on-foss image next to your sections, that's actually a near-infrared shot. And that captures that uh, pretty well. The pathophysiology is thought to be ischemia to either the inner nuclear or outer nuclear layer, which abuts the watershed zone of the retina, which is the outer plexiform layer. So it's one of the two layers that's kind of surrounds that outer plexiform layer. There's two types of acute macular neuroretinopathy, AMN. Type 1 is more inner, and then type 2 is more outer nuclear layer. Okay, the last one. Acute idiopathic maculopathy. What, what is this? This is crazy. It's You basically get a spontaneous exudative macular retinal detachment. So you get a, this spontaneous subretinal fluid that develops and separates the macula from the underlying choroid. It typically gets complete vision recovery after apparently doing nothing, um, but it will leave a bullseye maculopathy, which matches the RP alteration that you can get. So, wow. yeah, it's this weird thing that just gives you a spontaneous, like, fulvial macular detachment. Okay. <laughs> all right, all right. We did it. Well, what else? What else could we talk about with, if we've already branched out to white dot syndromes that don't have white dots, like Azor, AMN, AIM, what else are we going to talk about? There's a whole spectrum out there, Ben, of non-infectious retinopathies. Do we want to mention any others? Yeah. Let's mention two other inflammatory core retinal autoimmune conditions. Those, and we often talk about them together because they have very similar pathophysiologies. Those are Voigt Koyanagi Harada syndrome and Sympathetica ophthalmia. So VKH, Voigt Koyanagi, VKH is actually targets the melanocytes in the retina. So it's going to affect the choroid, which got has melanocytes, it's going to affect the retinal pigment epithelium too. But you may also find that your patients actually just look a little bleached out. Their skin is affected. Their, I, I guess you wouldn't be able to see their meninges or their inner ear, but those are affected too. Yeah, so. did you know that the inner ear has melanocytes? I did not know that. How does it even get sun? Yeah, I, I, I looked it up. It doesn't <laughs> seem like people really... If any ENT is listening to this and tell me what melanocytes in the inner ear do, I'd be delighted. Is that why people in the prodromal phase have tinnitus? It is why they have tinnitus. That's why oh, I even mention it. in disacusis. Uh-huh. But we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. Sure, sure, sure. If you've got a European patient or an African patient, 
Classically, you can say safely that they don't have VKH. This was typically described maybe by Koyanagi being a tip-off in Japanese or Asian populations. Recent literature is finding that that's actually not so true. More people than just East Asians have VKH. Right. The VCSE cites American Indians, Asian Indians, people from the Middle East, people from Asia. So it's basically not Europe or Africa. Then you have a chance of getting this. This So the three phases of VKH, they're going to start with a prodromal phase for the first one, second, acute uveitic, where things actually start happening with your eyes, and then three, the chronic convalescent phase, where the big changes are gone, but trouble can still pop up. So for the prodromal phase, it's what you'd expect, like a flu-like illness, as we already mentioned, because this melanocyte-targeting condition affects the inner ear and the meninges as well. You'll also have tinnitus, disacusis, and meningitis, potentially. Right. So it'll look kind of like a viral meningitis, exactly. And that's something that one can ask because it could be separated from their ocular symptoms by a couple of weeks. So you can ask them if they were admitted for viral meningitis or if they had a really bad headache with a flu, um, if you're suspecting someone has a syndrome like VKH. That brings us to the acute uveitic phase, which is where the majority of the ocular symptoms start. Because it's a disease that affects the RP and the choroid, you get inflammation in the RP and the choroid, so you can get panuveitis, and you can get a serous retinal attachment, presumably because you're having inflammation of the RPE, which causes fluid to develop between the neurosensory retina and the choroid. This is apparently a very painful phase, and they're very light sensitive, as you'd imagine, too. Um, this panuveitis thing. Dalen Fuchs nodules, those always pop up on exams. Yeah. That's where, this is where they come into play, right? What are Dalen Fuchs nodules, Ben? Those are yellow-white lesions that can, that develop between the Brooks and the RPE. So it just all speaks to, you know, where the pathophysiology is happening. It's all happening because the immune system is targeting melanocytes. And, you know, that's why there's this inflammation and accumulation of inflammatory debris at the RPE. I remember getting confused between a dalen fuke nodule and some other kind of retinal pigmented yeah. discoloration that also had an ep- eponym name, but I don't remember what it was. Do you? Yeah, I think it's Dalen-Fuch. a thing. Yeah, I think it's something else Fuchs named, which are um, little bits of CNV that happens in people with myopic degeneration. Oh, yeah. And those are called... Forster Fuchs spots. Oh, there you go. There you go. So, so don't confuse Forster Fuchs spots with Dalen Fuchs nodules. Thanks for bringing that up, Andrew, because that's something that can be easily missed in someone who has vision problems and like a weird retina. So Dalen Fuchs is for VKH. Forster Fuchs for CNV, right? Uh, yeah, it's in myopic degeneration. They get little 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 bundles of CNV that don't really do anything, but you can see them. Just to make sure you uh, didn't miss it, in the second acute uveitic phase, all of this. Pain, photophobia, vision loss, Dalen Fuchs, panuveitis. You also get serious RDs. Right. What do you know about those? The fluid will shift, leading them upright and then leading them supine. Right. And this might be where VKH comes up a lot. And if you see a patient that has an RD and you can't find a tear and you're thinking it's in a position that looks like it might be serious, VKH should come up on your differential and guide you to ask questions in terms of history and to look for exam findings to make you think of VKH at least. Right. 
Phase three, the chronic convalescent phase. This is where the eye symptoms start to go away. Your uveitis goes away, but the depigmentation of starts to happen across the skin and the eye. So not only do you start getting like skin blanching, you become out, sort of start seeing alopecia. Parts of your skin become vitiligous. Can I say that? Vitiligous. 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 Um, you can get that little polyosis, that very fashionable patch of white hair, mm-hmm. too. Pink rogue from the X-Men. Look at the eyelashes, too. You're probably yeah. going to look at that first before you look at someone's hair anyway. We know. We know the truth. We know. You can get other signs, other fun eponymous, eponymous signs. Sugiora sign. Sugira? Sugura? The Sugura sign is when your limbus hypopigments. And one of my favorite signs, the oh no sign, is when your trabecular meshwork has something happened to is, it. Is depigmented <laughs> as well. Then you can get sunset glow. You get a pale disc with a bright red orange choroid. This may seem like a random list of things, but it all comes back to the fundamental pathophysiology, which is that this is an autoimmune response to melanocytes. So anything that has melanin in it can be targeted from your hair to your skin to your limbus. To the trabecular meshwork, which is oh no sign, to the choroid, which gives you sunset glow. Okay. Cool. VKH. That was VKH, phase one, prodrome, uveitic, and chronic convalescent phase. And lastly, we want to mention one more phase, the chronic recurrent phase. Now, compared to the acute phase, a chronic recurrence usually is in granulomatous acute anterior uveitis compared to the posterior symptoms that we were discussing before. So the last thing we're going to talk about then tonight is the one that's kind of related to VKH. Asympathetic ophthalmia. The pathophysiology is first to know or to remember that the eye is an immunologically privileged place. And the two immunologically privileged places are only the eyeballs and the testicles, actually. So it's the eyeballs and the ball balls. When something disrupts that immunologic privilege, i.e. the common example is penetrating trauma, then the idea is that the immune system is now exposed to those ocular antigens, which allows for an immune response to, to those antigens. Fun fact, it's believed that this condition is what blinded Louis Braille. Yes, that Braille, the guy who founded Walmart. I'm joking. He's, he made the Braille system. I'm shaking my head. Uh, you can't see. Editor, edit out him shaking his head. So if you're curious, the story goes that the young Louis Braille was trying to help punch holes in a piece of leather in his father's workshop and he was trying to punch a hole through it and he was looking at the piece of leather and when the little awl he was using punched through it kept going and it hit him in the eye and causes what sounds like a ruptured globe there weren't any surgical interventions that could be offered at that time so he ended up developing a very bad infection in that eye then several weeks later, he started having pain and vision loss in the fellow eye without any injury to the fellow eye. So it's thought that what happened was sympathetic ophthalmia, as we'll go into a bit. So this it turns out this also targets the melanin-bearing cells. It's not 100% clear what specific antigen is targeted in sympathetic ophthalmia. They've never identified any specific antibody in the blood. There's a bunch of theories. What is important to know is that it's... It also attacks melanin-bearing cells. So it can give you the panuveitis. So you can get, you know, AC cell, everything to posterior uveitis and intermediate uveitis. And they can also get the um, serous retinal attachments, just like in VKH. Did you know, Ben, that sympathetic ophthalmia also has Dalen-Fuchs nodules? 
Now I do. Uh-huh. Dale and Fuchs are not specific for VKH. They can happen in either. But that's why we talk about it slightly sort of related to sympathetic and VKH. The whole melanin targeting thing. The whole Dalen Fuchs thing. Right. You can get a lot of the, a similar um, manifestations. The extraocular manifestations can also occur like vitiligo and poliosis. But it's reported that's much less common in a sympathetic ophthalmia compared to VKH. Because of the incidence of SO, sympathetic ophthalmia, it's classically taught that if an eye is completely, the ocular structures of an eye are completely destroyed and there's no potential for visual potential, then it's a good idea to enucleate it within at least one, within around one week. The uh, literature varies on what the actual ideal time frame is to prevent the onset of sympathetic ophthalmia. No, everybody talks about this to sort of, honestly, when they're discussing enucleation with trauma traumatic globe patients, the risk of sympathetic ophthalmia comes up a lot. But do you know what the actual incidence of it is? It's really, really vanishingly small. What is it? 0.2 to 0.5% incidence. Oh my. Now, think of it this way, though, too. If it's just the destruction of the immune barrier, then this could happen during any kind of eye surgery as well. Thankfully, the incidence of that is even lower Instead of 0.2 to 0.5% for traumatic injuries, uh, sympathetic ophthalmia from surgery, intraocular surgery, is 0.01% in incidence. Right. To help explain why penetrating trauma may have a may have a higher rate of sympathetic ophthalmia compared to something like controlled surgical intervention, is the idea is that you have to have uvea exposed to the conjunctiva. The way to have that happen is the uvea has to prolapse to come in contact with the conjunctiva to ex- expose the antigens from the uvea to the lymphatic system of the conjunctiva. Because remember, there's no lymphatics in the eye. That's what we have today, Andrew. Okay. If you liked what you heard, you can follow us on Twitter at Eyes4Years with the number 4. You can also leave us any questions, comments, or corrections. We'd love to hear them. And it helps us to rate and review us on iTunes. And a big thank you to you for supporting us by listening. See you next time. Bye. Bye. Thank you, Jasmine.